Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have an even better show for you today than we did yesterday, if you can possibly believe it. Rihanna, what are we getting into this Cinco de Mayo? Well, we are going to look back at some of the highlights from yesterday's hearing with DHS over their new Disinformation Governance Board. And our panel will weigh in on the major COVID outbreak that happened at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. But first, yesterday, President Biden said that the federal government will pay down the national debt this quarter for the first time in six years. Here's Biden making his announcement yesterday. Let me remind you again, I reduced the federal deficit. All the talk about the deficit from my Republican friends, I love it. I reduced it $350 billion in my first year in office. And we're on track to reduce it by the end of September by another $1,500,000,000, the largest drop ever. I don't want to hear Republicans talk about deficits and their ultra-mega agenda. Biden's comments came just before the Federal Reserve announced another hike in interest rates geared toward easing inflation. The central bank raised the rate by 0.5 percentage points, doubling the size of the typical quarter-point increase as the agency cites Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China lockdowns as major inflation risks. Now, the Dow jumped more than 900 points after Jerome Powell revealed the measure, though investors on Wall Street hailed the Fed's aggressive rate hike. Economy reporter at Business Insider, Ben Wink, writes that the increase will have dramatic effects on the economy in coming weeks and will directly translate to higher mortgage rates, pricier car loans, and larger interest payments on credit card debt. Ben Wink joins us now to break it all down. Ben, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, Ben, you mentioned, obviously, in your article that these interest rates are going to, you know, redound to the deficit of the consumer. Is it still a good idea, though? It, will it be effective in bringing down inflation? Right. So the Federal Reserve and, and Chair Powell said yesterday that, you know, the, the problem here is this massive gap between supply and demand. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, these COVID lockdowns in China and uh, Russia's, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that's really hitting the supply side, but the Fed can't really do much about that, right? That is, that's just a massive uh, you know, geopolitical issue, uh, the COVID issues, but they can really affect demand. And that's what they're doing here, right? Raising interest rates and making loans and borrowing more expensive, that's an effort to sort of rein in all the massive spending that we've seen over the past year. And that's really, uh, all that spending has really driven this massive gap uh, in supply and demand. And that's been fueling the inflation that we've been seeing now for for you know, really the past several months. Well, right, and when when you know when Biden touts his deficit reduction, right, what we're actually talking about here is just the fact that we're not spending, uh, we don't have the massive a massive COVID spending package, and also that he didn't, he wasn't able to get through Congress a lot of the spending he wanted to get through. <laughs> so it's right. It, am I missing something there? It's kind of weird, I think, to brag about because Congress stopped you, denied you from doing what you want. Now we, we're, we're actually reduced the deficit. But that like that wasn't by intention. Right. I mean, yeah, when when Joe Manchin gives you lemons, you know, you, you make uh, <laughs> you know, reducing the deficit lemonade, I guess um, it, it is a it is a more positive way to put it. Um, and I, I'd also say, you know, back in, in early in the Biden presidency, um, when they passed the uh, the latest stimulus bill, the 1.9 trillion uh, stimulus package, there's a lot of opposition from Republicans saying, you know, this is just going to boost inflation, right? We don't need more aid. The economy is healing. We have COVID uh, vaccines rolling out right now. This this support isn't needed. Um, and you know, sure enough, yeah, we've seen inflation surge since. Now, I wouldn't. It, it's not solely because of the stimulus package. We've had these supply chain issues. We've had uh, you know, new waves of COVID since 
But yeah, this is this is Biden in in a sense saying, you know, yes, inflation is really high, but we're now working toward you know, trimming down the deficit and uh, and sort of uh, you know giving the counter to to what happened back when the stimulus was passed. Now they're you know the Fed and the Biden administration are both shifting shifting toward uh, you know more more uh, austere measures, kind of reining in all that uh, cash that was flowing into the economy earlier in the pandemic. So, but on one hand, there is this desire to raise interest rates uh, to basically lower demand. On the other hand, you have these conversations about price caps on specific goods like uh, gasoline, which have become really, it's a, it's a good that has become very politicized in the context of this election year. Is this a kind of circular policy making? Is there a principle and effect in talking about price caps uh, out of one side of your mouth and then raising interest rates on the other? I think it's it's two sort of different sides of, of the same inflation problem. Like on mm-hmm. one hand, yes, you know, there, there are all these talks about how can we lower gas prices, especially going into the midterms, right, where Democrats are trying to to alleviate this inflation problem or at least show they're they're doing that as best they can. Um, we've heard about you know, the gas tax holiday as a, as a potential idea. Um, you know, Biden has has re- uh, released some crude oil uh, from the strategic reserves that we have here. Uh, allies have been doing that as well abroad. Um, but at the end of the day, that doesn't solve the that, that's more of a Band-Aid right to this problem. It doesn't solve the inherent gap that we have in the amount of oil that's that's hitting the market um, and how much demand there is for that oil, uh, you know, especially with COVID cases at relative lows. You know, people are out traveling, acting like uh, uh, or, or behaving like, you know, the, the worst of the pandemic is is behind us. And it, and it is. Um, but. You know, there's all this demand for travel, for, for driving, for, for traveling around. Um, and we just don't have the supply now. And so what the Fed is doing, that's more toward that's that's a more uh, long term uh, move, you know, try to lower demand, uh, not just, um, you know, not just offering a temporary aid through you know lower prices, um, but actually, you know, lowering demand in that equation that's been driving inflation higher. You know, do you think that this is something that resonates uh, with a lot of voters? Obviously, the Democrats are in real trouble. Biden's uh, numbers are way, 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 way down. And, you know, something traditionally that Republicans have hammered Democrats on is, you know, reckless spending, out of control spending, expanding the deficit. Then, of course, when Republicans are in are in power, they do absolutely nothing to rein in any of those things. Uh, so, so is Biden trying to take some wind out of their sails by, you know, talking about uh, his spending in this way? I think he is. And especially, you know, like I said earlier, especially with all the arguments about how stimulus is going to boost inflation and then that coming true. And this is, uh, you know, kind of patching up um, at least or, or, or maybe kind of changing the narrative around that. Right. He's now shifting to this, you know, I'm cutting the deficit. Uh, messaging and, and especially with inflation still very high, and you know Republicans are sure to hammer Democrats on that. Uh, you know, as we see campaigns, midterm campaigns ramp up, um, it, it's definitely you know that's definitely the the sort of uh, calculus going on at least uh, in the White House now. Um, you know, is it too late? I think is the big question. And and inflation at least through March was eight and a half percent, or in the year through March. That's extremely high. There's some forecasts that that might be the peak. Um, we've seen some signs, at least, you know, small indicators like shipping rates and, uh, you know, inventories have improved. So maybe this that is the peak. And maybe we do see inflation uh, drop before the elections. But 
you know, looking looking to past, uh, you know, election years that also had really high inflation. Um, it's you know, if that's precedent, it's too late. Um, mm. And yes, the messaging is going to help. But really, the, the damage isn't done. People are still paying a lot more for things than they did a year ago. Um, and I should add that, yes, inflation might have peaked. And yes, it might be on uh, you know downward trend from here on out. But how quickly it returns to that 2% level that the Fed wants to see, that's still uh, the, the, the big unknown. And odds are it's going to take uh, a decent while for that to happen. There does seem to be this asymmetry between how ordinary people are doing in the context of the pandemic and how billionaires have done, how the extremely rich have done during the course of the, the pandemic. Um, where they we've seen them grow their wealth by you know like fifty percent at a, at a time when the rest of Americans are struggling so much. I wonder is there any you know uh, policy way to address the increasing cost and lowering demand among ordinary Americans in the out of control spending that has come from the upper transfers of wealth from some of these COVID bills to the very very rich? Is it right to conflate say the recurring you know the two thousand dollar check that never came and what that the effect of that might have had on inflation? to the huge amounts of money that have gone to the very, very rich. I think it's 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 tough because obviously, you know, we tried to do this recovery differently than we did the recovery after the, the Great Recession. Right. That was there's far less stimulus cash uh, cash back in uh, the late 2000s, early 2010s. Um, and it was a much slower recovery. So what we've seen over the past two years is, is sort of, OK, let's try the opposite. Let's flood the economy with with stimulus. Um, the Fed, you know, cut rates to zero again and, and then did more. Um, you know, there were plenty of emergency lending programs um, and we had a very fast recovery. Um, you know, yes, inflation is high, but make no mistake. We've we've had a jobs recovery that's three times faster than that after the uh, financial crisis. Um, spending is is up. Household spending is, is at record highs right now, even with inflation at the levels that we've seen um, now. Because of that fast recovery, I think that's really been uh, behind a lot of the wealth gain that we've seen uh, among billionaires, right? That they have so much of their cash, most of their cash tied up in markets. And markets have seen that we've had this massive rebound. Um, you know, some would call it V-shaped. And because of that, because of this really fast recovery compared to the, the one we had before, um, you know, asset prices have soared. Now we've seen that dented a bit in recent weeks. Um, stocks are not at the highs that they were at just a few, uh, you know, a few weeks or a couple months ago. But because of that, that's that's why uh, you know billionaires have gotten so much richer. And I think as for, as for policy solutions, I, I think that's really tough because you've already seen Democrats struggle to to uh, you know pass or uh, you know agree on anything that would target billionaires, right? The, a wealth tax. Or a tax on um, on capital gains. You know, there's they can't agree on on how to go about that, how to maybe level that playing field. So, as far as you know, how to fight inflation while you know also not hurting, um, you know, lower and, and middle income households, uh, and mainly focusing on the wealthy. You know, that's mostly mo most of that fight. Most of the fight with inflation is the Fed's job, and they're not really concerned about that right now. What they want to do is just get inflation back to that 2% level. Hmm. Well, Ben Wink, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Brianna, what's on your radar? 
Well, Janine Pirro, Fox News host and author of Don't Lie to Me and Stop Trying to Steal Our Freedom, feels strongly that the person who leaked the draft Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe should be thrown in jail. That's right, the person who was so preoccupied with individual freedom that she wrote a whole book about it believes that the leaker, who is in all likelihood a 20-something law clerk who broke no laws, should be incarcerated. Take a listen. I don't have the slightest idea who yeah. leaked it, but I'll tell you this. Whoever leaked it did something that is unheard of in American history. I mean, you just don't leak a decision by any judge, let alone a Supreme Court justice. I mean, there is. And one of the things that we can be proud of is that the justices on the Supreme Court, they can be on the opposite side of issues, but you never hear about them not getting along. I mean, we hear about Scalia, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the best of friends, although ideologically they were on opposite sides. So whoever leaked this, we have to find out who the person is and, and and charge them with a crime. I don't know what the crime would be, whether it's some kind of fraud on government property. Uh, I've heard there's a statute, fraud on the government, that's very broad that could include this kind of uh, act. But I'll tell you what's so interesting about this is if they wanted to, to gin up the left, who was in for an alleged bloodbath in November by the Republicans, there is no better way to do it than with Roe versus Wade. Now, Pirro isn't concerned about establishing which crime the leakers should be charged with. You hear her fantasizing about broadening existing laws in the book so that they could just capture whatever has happened here. She articulates none of the due process concerns bandied about in the context of, say, the Kavanaugh hearings. She, a person with a law degree who is herself somehow a judge, went on national television and advocated for this person, whoever they are, to be thrown into the gulag. What's worse, she is far from the only one who adopted this take. At the New York Post, uh, someone argued that the very integrity of the Supreme Court depends on the prosecution of the leaker. The integrity of our legal system, which I'll remind you we value for its due process protections, its First Amendment protections, its worker protections, well, I suppose it's worth throwing all of those things out the window in the interest of preserving judicial integrity. Now, certainly conservatives aren't the only ones who inconsistently bloviate about free speech and due process when it's their guy or gal under the microscope, all while calling for authoritarian programs when the enemy has transgressed. Hunter Biden laughed out much. <laughs> but that's sort of my point. So much of the arguments about free speech and cancel culture are pure ideology just dressed up in constitutional vestments that are intended to lend an air of objectivity but it's all fake. There are some principled free speech absolutists. Glenn Greenwald will defend Julian Assange's journalistic right to leak newsworthy classified documents and a Nazi's right to protest. But more, most people aren't like that. Outside of leftists and socialists and some principled libertarians, how folks feel about Julian Assange usually comes down to political ideology. Are you an it's her turn Hillary fan for whom Assange is the guy who leaked the emails that hurt her 2016 run? Or were you a Bernie leftist who had no attachment to Hillary or, or Trump, but who is deeply committed to human rights and who admires the courage it took to expose America's war crimes? If you are a libertarian who thinks the government should stay out of our lives to the greatest extent possible, do you feel differently about that depending on whether we're talking about the right to own a gun? versus the right to have an abortion, versus the right to leak sensitive work documents without going to jail. If you believe the leaker violated professional standards, you are right. I agree 
They most certainly did. I can tell you as someone who did a federal district clerkship that the code of privacy applied to judicial process is taken very seriously. What happens in chambers stays in chambers. But when I clerked, I signed no NDA, was not bound by a civil contract, and certainly was not subject to any criminal recourse should I have violated that norm. And neither was the leaker, presuming they are, in fact, a Supreme Court clerk. If a clerk leaked the draft opinion, they will surely suffer professional consequences. In an article arguing against prosecuting the leaker, Reason journalist and Robbie colleague Eric Bohm pointed out that late Justice Antonin Scalia reportedly told new law clerks that he would, quote, ruin your career if any of them betrayed the court's confidentiality. And he could. <laughs> this would be career suicide, said Carolyn Shapiro, a former clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer at a, uh, and a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. And she is right. You can't even begin to imagine how competitive Supreme Court clerkships are. And there's a reason for that. Getting one means you can earn huge salary bonuses at major law firms when you're done. It's basically a guaranteed ticket to the top. There's a reason why nearly all Supreme Court justices were once Supreme Court clerks. And losing that access after working so hard to get it should be considered punishment enough for even the most punitive institutionalist. But trying to throw the leaker in jail? I I'm sorry, that, that just doesn't make much sense. There are no laws that explicitly prohibit anyone from leaking a draft opinion. These aren't state secrets or national security documents. Some folks have argued that various fraud statutes should apply, but it would take an activist court acting way out of bounds to make that stick and wait, <laughs> maybe I guess there is a chance of that. But in all seriousness, look, when I was a corporate lawyer, I handled tons of cases involving claims that employees had taken confidential and proprietary information with them, usually as they moved from one employer to another. Most of these cases weren't about the information at all. Firms filed suit against the other firms that perched their staffers to try to discourage poaching in the future. The employees were the assets more so than some random Excel doc with client lists. And there were consequences, significant consequences of a plaintiff won. But these were civil cases. These were monetary consequences, money damages. Folks had to pay up when employers breached non-competes, contracts. But we're not even talking about breach of contract when we're talking about the leaker, much less criminal charges. Why does this matter? Well, there's a real risk of slippage into authoritarianism when incarceration becomes a solution for dealing with people and outcomes you don't like. Look at what happened to Stephen Donzinger. He's an environmental lawyer who litigated and won the largest judgment against an oil company ever. He actually got a court to find Chevron liable for massive pollution in the Amazon, 80 times more oil than was spilled in BP's 2010 Deepwater uh, Horizon disaster. Pollution that poisoned indigenous people, causing cancer, miscarriages, skin conditions, and birth defects. But instead of paying, Chevron launched a legal attack against Donzinger. They were able to use the power of unlimited corporate money to get a private law firm to represent the government and prosecuting Donzinger, a highly unusual move that resulted in Donzinger spending nearly a thousand days under house arrest, including being sentenced to six months in jail in the middle of a global pandemic. Freedom loving Americans, hear me out. I am begging you to consider that locking people up for saying and doing things you disagree with outside of a criminal context is not the best way to demonstrate how much you appreciate bedrock American values like due process, the First Amendment, and freedom. 
Some of the responses to the leak literally sound like an Onion article. SCOTUS rules that citizens don't have a right to privacy. Urge prosecution of colleagues for violating their right to privacy. <laughs> Surely you can see the inconsistency here. I'm not here to tell anyone not to be upset about the leak. It's a natural response depending on your politics and what you think the motive of the leaker was. But consider resisting the march toward authoritarianism as you protest this outcome. Incarceration is a very blunt tool and I suggest we use it sparingly. So, Robbie? No disagreement. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, what do you want to say? I agree. Yeah, I, I, I said it earlier. Uh, I, I think it's crazy. It, it, and honestly, a lot of the people, well, I don't know. I think some of the people calling for oh, lock them up, this is like a knee-jerk response to frustration that this happened. And if they probably thought about it a mm -hmm. little bit longer, would realize that, no, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, what do you think that there's so many high-profile people? The idea that Janine Pirro, who has a law background, hops on TV and starts wildly pontificating. I'm sure we can dig up a law somewhere to get this person in jail. I mean, that is kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> it's dumb. I mean, what do you want to say? Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, I don't know that. Um, but I, I will say, look, the, the suffering of, of uh, the professional consequences being suffered for this, I think, are perfectly legitimate. And I think it's extraordinarily likely in this case that if the person is identified and it turns out that they are a, that the most straightforward explanation is the correct one, this is a progressive person who wants to defend abortion rights, wants to defend Roe, and thought that leaking the decision, you know, to the extent it could be, it, it could possibly cause someone like a Kavanaugh to reconsider, or, you know, it could start preparing the outrage. Um, I, and maybe there's nothing that can be done about that, but I, I get, I think that's the most likely explanation for this person's actions. And I think in that case, this person will, will suffer the narrow professional consequence of no longer being a clerk for the Supreme Court or any other Republican judge. Uh, or I mean, not that they are a clerk currently for a Republican judge, that uh, consequence, but they will, they will, like, things will get better for their, for their well, career. I, they will become a hero to progressives. It, it's they possible. will write their own ticket. They will be lionized and celebrated um, the way the, the so-called Facebook whistleblower, Frances Haugen, was when she came out with that information about Instagram. Where is she and it was, it was, I don't know, on some private eye. Didn't she, wasn't she like a, had a Bitcoin fortune? Uh, I, I have no idea. But look, I, I will say that that is perfectly possible. And I don't know what this person, whoever they are, what their long-term goals were. If their goals were to stay in the corporate sphere, it's not like law firms as much as they might, you know, the right might want to characterize them this way. They're not bastions of progressivism. They're just not. They're very conservative institutions. I worked at a law firm that was run by three, two out of three Republican partners. It was a conservative environment and they would not, look at something, someone who does something like this kindly. And most, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her, you know, right. if, if it were money, that environment's done, I agree. If it were but. a money game and she was looking for these, you know, $100,000 bonuses that you can get when you have a clerkship like this, that's off the table. And I doubt the ACLU or whatever NGO she might be able to fall back on is going to remunerate her in exactly that way. But if that's not what her interests are or her, his, who knows, awards, I'm just making up. Awards, pension, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. That book can, you know, become a talking head. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the Inquisition uh, is going to happen over the coming weeks, and I'm sure we'll find out more about this person soon. And we will find out more about what's coming up on Rising after this. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas gave testimony before the House Appropriations Committee on Homeland Security yesterday. 
about the department's new disinformation governance board, which we've talked about a fair amount on this show. Now, Mayorkas said the board was created by DHS to combat online disinformation, adding that the department is focused on the spread of disinformation in minority communities ahead of midterm elections. And while some have criticized the department as a way for the government to censor citizens and unfavorable news, Republicans grilled Secretary Mayorkas over its hiring of Mina Yankowicz, the disinformation board's newly appointed leader, who went viral on TikTok for this. Information laundering is really quite ferocious. It's when a huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or a mainstream outlet. So disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. When Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine, or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain, they're laundering disinfo, and we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet, voice, or vote. Oh! <laughs> it really doesn't get better the more you listen to it. Yes, it does. It's taken the journey from cringe to actually, in, like, it's so cringe, I now enjoy watching. Oh, yeah, I saw your shoulders bobbing there while we played oh, that background. I don't know what you're talking about, Brianna. <laughs> well, Senator Kennedy questioned Mayorkas about Yankovic's TikTok account and her views on Hunter Biden's laptop. Here's what he had to say. When, when the department picked her, was the department aware of her TikTok videos? Uh, Senator, um, uh, I they're, was... They're really quite precocious. Um, uh, <laughs> Senator, um, I was not uh, aware uh, of those videos. When you, uh, when the department picked her, did, did it know that she had said that Mr. Hunter Biden's laptop is Russian disinformation? Um, Senator, uh, let me, let me... Uh, repeat myself and add one uh, other fact. I was not aware of that. Uh, we do not discuss the internal hiring process. Ultimately, as the secretary, I'm responsible for the decisions of the Department of right. Homeland Security. Well, that was, <laughs> was endlessly uh, entertaining, um, and I appreciate that Senator Kennedy uh, worked in that. It's really quite <laughs> precocious uh, reference. <laughs> very entertaining, very entertaining. So but look, it's a fair, it's a fair point. Uh, it's you know, right. it's something we've talked about on this show. The woman picked to head this board, which we're not totally clear on what it's going to do. Mayorkas has tried to offer more explanation and really assurances that, to my mind, are based in the board not being not doing very much at all. Uh, so I guess fine. But you know, this person, uh, Yankovic, had a had a. Has a, has a, there's a trail you can look at online of her tweets and other things, her statements, that she, you know, like other resistance, anti-Russia, liberal-type people, thought the Hunter Biden story was disinformation and, and you know, on and on and on. So that, yeah. that makes us wonder, like, another one of these types of characters in a disinformation position? Yeah, the real concern, as funny as it is, isn't that they didn't know about the TikToks before they put her in this position, but that they didn't know she had said all of these things that showed that she was really credible, cre you know, credulous in believing all of these. And other they clearly things don't care. Like they clearly don't care. Right. Yeah. Like, if she had anti-vax views, they would care. They'd mm -hmm. say, "Oh no, that, that's because those views are wrong. That's misinformation. You can't hold this job." But holding views, being wrong about. Uh, Russiagate, uh, collusion, or Hunter Biden, or, or all that stuff. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Like, that's not disqualifying at all, right? Don't you think that's a double look. standard, Kim? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that they didn't even interview anyone else either, that this was the only person they had spoken to, they didn't know anything about her past, really. I mean, looking into her, the only reason why they chose her, I mean, well, it's hard to know what the exact reasons are, but, you know, she did study in Russia. Her, she double majored in Russian and in political science, and she also studied in Kiev and worked with the foreign ministry of Ukraine. So, she, so she's connected to both Russia and Ukraine. But she's very young, you know, she's a 32, 33, uh, which, you know, that that to me, when you're, especially if they're trying to target, let's say, Russian disinformation or misinformation, because for some reason in this country, we're under the belief that Putin is like super powerful, right? Because <laughs> he controls everything, including our elections and everything we believe and see. I mean, it's like amazing all of the, uh, the amount, and he's, uh, it, he's responsible for what, the price hikes, the gas, the inflation, everything. I mean, the man is seems to be some sort of a wizard, I suppose. But she's, you know, I, I worry that because she's so ingrained in like the TikTok world and, and being fairly young and with Russia and Ukraine and the whole, you know, I don't know if there was a time, right, when we came out of another Cold War and it was very, very dangerous. And it would be nice to have somebody who had maybe a little bit more perspective on that time frame, mm. I would say, a little bit just to make sure we don't march ourselves back into something like that. And when she's classifying everything as misinformation or disinformation, even when it isn't, as we've seen, she's already proven that she's not very good at this at that job uh, before even taking the job. Then it, I just worry that, you know, absolutely everything that is going to be labeled that she doesn't like is going to be labeled misinformation or disinformation. And it's just going to continue fanning more dangerous flames of our relationship with Russia. That is, I think, the biggest concern, not to mention the concern of, you know, obviously censoring and silencing Americans and saying, oh, you're all now being labeled mm -hmm. misinformation. Yeah, right. Something we hear from over, over, over and over again. Uh, anyway, Fox News reported that Yankovich has since made her TikTok account private. Meanwhile, Senator Josh Hawley pressed Mayorkas over the hiring process of Yankovich and her past comments on social media. Let's watch that. The president's supporters in Congress are homegrown purveyors of disinformation. These would be the people that, that people in my state, for instance, have elected. They do not want to remind the American people of these inconvenient truths. They choose instead to shout lies through a megaphone, capitalizing on their constituents' unfamiliarity, ambivalence, or polarization. Let's just, one more time. The president's supporters in Congress are homegrown purveyors of disinformation. Does this sound like somebody who's neutral to you? Um, Senator, um, let me share with you that I am not focused on her past comments. I am focused on... Wait, wait a minute. Why in the world wouldn't you be <laughs> focused on her past comments? If, if I may, because I am focused on the mission um, upon us and ahead of us. And what I've articulated... You've hired her for this job and you haven't looked at her record and you're not concerned not, about it? That's not what I've said. That's you just said, said that you're not concerned about her past comments. But what I said is I am focused on the mission ahead and accomplishing that mission. You've that, chosen her to accomplish that mission with these statements. Do you regard her as neutral? And she has an obligation while an employee of the Department of Homeland Security to execute. So you have complete confidence in her to execute her responsibilities in a nonpartisan way. And you based on her record, you have complete confidence that she's going to do that. I have confidence in that. And if she fails um, in executing that obligation, as all individuals in the Department of Homeland Security wow. do, has, then there will be a consequence to that. 
Ooh, kids, do not tweet. I mean, I have the expectation that there will be at least like a cursory review of my social media before I'm hired for a job. And the idea that they didn't look and then wouldn't even recognize that that's an obvious indicator of non-neutrality and that weird doublespeak we just saw is pretty, it's pretty uh, out there. Yeah, obviously she's not neutral. So how could we, how right. could we pretend that she is, right? She has views and she might be right about some views. I, like in that specific thing she's saying, yeah, there are, there are people who spread on, on the right who spread misinformation on various subjects, uh, but she's only going to call out that. That's the problem. Yeah. She's only cares about that. And she might be right about a lot of that, but she's not, she was wrong about the kinds of misinformation that have been spread by Democrats, by progressives, and she would never call out that. It's, it's not even clear she's acknowledged it. Hmm. Not only that, I mean, I don't think he cares that she's not neutral. I, I, I mean, sure, it'd be like, well, yeah, I don't think they care. I don't think the administration cares. I think they actually yeah. are using this position for political gain. They know that they're going to go out there and try to censor and silence people that they do not agree with, whether they be on the left or the right. Because we, we have to remember, a lot of leftists that are anti-war are being smeared as being pro-Putin, propagandist, mm -hmm. Kremlin talking points, right? So they're going to be going after anyone who is against their agenda. That's yeah. going to be anyone on the right or the left. I don't think they care. I don't even think it's about them not doing their due diligence. Not She's going to have a pretty long comments. Kim Iverson file, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll be going after this one a lot. Oh. This is yeah. it. And I think your point, Robbie, is important that if they don't want someone to be neutral, if they think that there are there are some statements that are empirically correct, if they if, the, if he wants to defend the idea that you know Trump supporters were spreading misinformation, then defend it. But what's so wormy about that that mm -hmm. little exchange is that he wasn't even willing to stand on his own principle and say, yeah, we hired her because we believe in the political position she's taking here. And maybe you can You're push right. her to also condemn the statements, the, the the fake news that's been coming out of the the left and left and liberal censorship, but to let it stand there is, is really disheartening regardless of what your political orientation. You're absolutely right. That's exactly what it was. It was wormy. Like if you're going to say, nope, Republicans are liars. They're tricking you. They're, you know, they're spreading lies. Just, just say that. Don't yeah. be, uh, well, no, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. And we're not looking at the past thing she said. And she's going to be very neutral, even though she's never demonstrated any neutrality whatsoever so far. Like, come on, yeah. not persuasive at all. Nope. No. Well, our rising panel will join us next, and we'll discuss the super spreader event the White House Correspondents' Dinner turned out to be. More COVID coverage. Stick around for that. Well, it turns out the White House Correspondents' Dinner did turn out to be a super spreader. CNN's Oliver Darcy confirmed reporters and staffers from CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Politico all tested positive for COVID. ABC News' John Carl tested positive as well, and you can see here he had close contact with President Biden. And yesterday we learned that Secretary of State Antony Blinken has also tested positive after attending the dinner. The State Department said Blinken hasn't met with Biden for several days and is not considered a close contact of the president. Washington Post journalist Taylor Lorenz tweeted her condolences, saying it's horrifying hearing about so many people testing positive after the dinner and said she's thinking of all the vulnerable people in D.C. and the downstream effects of hosting a super spreader event for no reason. Political journalist Rebecca Azor and cultural editor at The Federalist and co-host of Rising Fridays, Emily Jashinsky, join us to weigh in. Welcome to you both. Thank you. All right. So perhaps this is unsurprising. There were folks that anticipated this was going to happen. Of course, uh, at the top of the event, you had Trevor Noah making a joke about how this was going to be a super spreader event. 
Emily, how are people on the right kind of reconciling some frustration about the mandates and the masking with their kind of glee over all these liberals coming down <laughs> with COVID, um, you know, kind of in defiance of them and not following their own mandates? But also, doesn't that kind of undermine some of the belief that this COVID is over and we can all unmask without risk? Well, so Ryan, and I, this is exactly why Ryan and I started our show last week with uh, the COVID, Anthony Fauci saying, oh, the pandemic's not over, even though I said it was, is because the White House Correspondence Center was going to happen, be this hugely high profile event. It was going to be a super spreader event that was pretty obvious. So that's probably why Fauci decided not to go. And it was then going to be centered in our conversation because all of these folks in the media were directly affected. We were going straight to this threat of having you know people really say that this cost-benefit analysis of getting on with life is not, that that's just not worth it. Um, and, and so I think, first of all, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, as I've written in the past, is just an orgy of elitism. It is so distasteful and disgusting. It's especially disgusting uh, from people who have mocked others who have made that cost-benefit analysis for a very long time. Um, so, you know, to get on with life as normal. But also, yes, I think it, this is hopefully, instead of, you know, resurrecting any bad regulations or anything like that, emergency measures, this is a sign um, that we need to reconcile the fact with life has to go on. We do, we cannot have the same levels of, of drug overdoses, um, you know, overwhelmed rehab clinics, suicides. We cannot do that anymore. We need to get back into the rhythm of normal human life uh, with the fact that COVID is extremely contagious. Um, it manifests in severe ways in some people, not so severe ways in other people, and it is with us. So if this is part of that process, then it's constructive. If the sort of elites who are now directly affected by it uh, use it to thrust us back to 2020, it will be uh, very sad. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key. Look, people know what the risks are now. They, they can choose their own level of risk. Fauci said he didn't want to go to the event. That's fine. He did, of course, go to the brunch uh, beforehand, which I, maybe it's somewhat less, uh, less risky. Still was hugging and talking to a lot of people in close quarters. But anyway, sure, everyone can, can plan for their own risk. So I don't really care if these people wanted to do this. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous, embarrassing event, like you said, Emily. But they want to do this. It's fine. What I will be infuriated over if, if now this is used as justification for further further restriction. I mean, Rebecca, how could how could these kinds of people, the people who, you know, go to this event, enjoy it and catch COVID just like everyone expected them to, how could they possibly have any authority to moral authority to, to, to you know to to proceed from this and bring back masking requirements or restrictions or or or, or vaccine requirements? You know, when, when they're they're happy to party when they're when they want to. And then it, it, it seems like it's that the rules are just for everyone else, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if we um, Emily said it best, it's like an orgy of elitists. Right. Um, it doesn't matter where you are on the stance of uh, of covid covid. The pandemic isn't over, but I, I understand that life has to go on. We, this is true. But. These are the same people who were telling us to mask up, to stay protected, to get vaccinated. But when you're throwing these kind of events, it's not only these people who have access to health care, who can make sure that they get the best care as possible, even though COVID doesn't care about your pockets. But you have a better chance. You have a better chance of going to the doctors and making sure you you ha you are living in a space where you are able to quarantine.
routine, right? Now, the people who are working the event is what I'm thinking about. Are these people thinking about them? These people who have money and who have access to health care and who can do whatever they want uh, are the people, you know, who are who are at this event, clearly. Uh, so they go without in without other people in mind. The people who are working in the, the event is what I'm thinking about. Because those are the people that they say that they're fighting for, right? But in this party, they aren't thinking about those people. Uh, the servers who may not have the option to have leave, sick leave with, with pay, right? Uh, they're surrounded with people who are choosing to be maskless. And this is the only way that they may be able to get their income. Now, these are the same people who are at this event, who are throwing this event, who are a part of this event, who are saying they want to stand for, you know, uh, the constituents and, and, and the underpaid folks and the people who don't have uh, uh, access to health care. And now it's, it's very hypocritical. But I think what we should understand is that the pandemic isn't over in even recent months. Uh, it, this month, I mean, just a few days ago, it was showing that uh, the um, cases are getting higher. So um, just keep in mind as we're trying to, I guess these leaders need to keep in mind as we're trying to get ourselves back to normality, which I don't think we were ever get to for real. But um, as we're trying to get back there, um, they need to be an example. But of course, because they got money in their pockets and they don't really care and they have access to things that other people won't as fast, um, they can do whatever they want. So well, I think it's a, a hypocritical event. That's very key. Yes, we will never get back to normal if normal is no COVID because there will always be COVID. There will always be cases. I have said on the show before that, like, the fate of all humans is to eventually get COVID and in the extreme <laughs> majority of cases to recover just fine if you've been vaccinated, if you're not uh, at, at, at serious risk of a negative health outcome. But, you know, people who are as cautious as cautious can be, they've gotten it. They, they it, it's not, it's not me, threat. Robbie. Not, not me. You think, <laughs> really? I mean, you don't know what the don't hell put that on the <laughs> You think you haven't had it. I, the, the, the benefits of living alone, Robbie. <laughs> well, it, look, it has it has aff afflicted the the cautious and the, the the saints and sinners alike, as I usually say. And and the, you know the, the so I guess the 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 condemnation of people like Taylor Lorenz, whose, whose tweets we we put up, who has been very uh, very vocal on the oh my God, how why is anyone still doing anything normal? You know, there's still this. I don't know if risk that's, that is okay. very, but that's going to be how it is for the rest it's, of time. Yeah, I mean Taylor's point, uh, the point Her, that Taylor's she's been, point is crazy. Been making a lot is about crazy. people who you know are immunocompromised and how they have been left out of the conversation. And when we're talking to your point, Rebecca, about staffers, I mean both the immunocompromised and people who are working events who are you know the the uh, critical support or what, what do we call them during the COVID um, first line workers, all of these people, you know they cannot avoid COVID in the same way as other people either because they're working or because no they are vulnerable. They're, it's not avoidable. Well, they their risk profile rather is higher because they're either being they're, forced yeah. to work or they're vulnerable. So I think your point about the, the staffers is important in part because I, I saw a study yesterday that showed that it's actually black and brown people who disproportionately choose to mask. I think in part because they are put in these situations where they see the asymmetry in who yeah. has the ability to get the PCR test before they come to the fancy dinner, who has access to the more expensive, more effective mask, who is able to have sick leave and stay home while they're still having to provide um, the, the service class in this country. So uh, point, point point taken there. Um, <laughs> next, but isn't it, so but isn't it a feel, it's a feel, it's, it's a feel good measure to some extent, not entirely. You can, you can, you can reduce your risk of catching COVID by some, 
But it like it's it's so contag- it's get, it gets more and more contagious. It you know la- in December when Omicron came through the city, like everybody got it, no matter how. So not everybody, Robbie. Not, okay, not you, you're really in that in that <laughs> sealed bubble. You need to know life. not everyone. Okay, <laughs> the staff the, the staff actually at the Hilton. Um, was asking the White House Correspondence Center, I believe they're unionized, and I believe they were literally bargaining um, for additional COVID protections mm. for their staff because mm. they anticipated it would be a super spreader event. And so what actually happened is the people who have been preening and posturing for years against mm. anybody who you know rejected such requests or measures, they did it themselves and predictably participated in a super spreader event that did put the staff at risk as well. Um, and in ways, as you guys just highlighted, perhaps against their will and against their ability to make money and step back. Yeah. And to be clear, a lot of masks are not especially effective. We've now, it's a now open secret, what used to be. Right, we're allowed to acknowledge stores. that. But I still think that we should not collapse the distinctions between cloth masks and some of these surgical paper masks yeah. and the efficacy of KN95 masks and higher, which because of my own intuition, I've been using consistently through the pandemic when I'm in any situation other than like popping down, you know, in the Contrary elevator to go on to what, what the CDC's guidance was for a long time, right, which was right. no, any mask, all masks are, you know, just masks, just some kind of mask. That's right, what you need. Right, for sure. Yeah. Well, next, a comedian and TV show creator alleges he was censored for doing an episode about monopolistic consolidation in the cable industry. Writer Matt Stoller joins us to break it down. Adam Conover, creator of the comedy and journalism show Adam Ruins Everything, is alleging that Time Warner censored one of his episodes while in negotiations with AT&T about a potential merger. Conover explained to the head of the antitrust enforcement at the Department of Justice that the single time he was censored by the network was when he did an episode on, quote, monopolistic consolidation in the cable industry because Time Warner was scared it would anger AT&T and jeopardize the merger. Joining us now to discuss is research director for the American Economic Liberties Project and author of Goliath, Matt Stoller. Welcome, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, uh, you know, tell us more uh, about this story and, and why you, uh, you know, why you wanted to, to highlight it. What is it, you know, what is the lesson here? Yeah, so there's a lot of discussion about disinformation and censorship and whatnot. And I, I think there's a lot there. People want to say that the corporations want to help the left or the right or neither or both. But really, dominant firms use censorship all the time. They just use it to help themselves. And I thought this was a good story about that. Uh, But there are a lot of other examples of this problem. Well, what did the censorship in this case actually look like? Yeah, so what Adam says is that there was an episode which which he did. uh, So his show is a comedy journalistic show. And he talked about the episode was Adam Ruins the Internet, which was about how cable companies sort of screw you. And when they were in discussion with the merger, Time Warner pulled that episode from reruns and streaming because mm. they were afraid that it would for AT&T during the merger. But there's other examples of this um, that I highlighted. You know, in 2008, Comcast refused to run a political ad in the Philadelphia or Pennsylvania area um, that uh, criticized a candidate for doing something that would help Comcast on surveillance. And Comcast was an important player in that area, so a lot of voters didn't get to see that ad. Um, Facebook routinely censors for on its own behalf, so not for the right or the left, but 
you know, Sheryl Sandberg got a Daily Mail story killed the other, this was reported a couple weeks ago by the Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. because it made her look bad. And in 2009, Mark Zuckerberg actually deleted entirely a large uh, Facebook group, hundreds of thousands of users called Facebook Users Against the New Terms of Service. They were opposed to excessive surveillance and Mark Zuckerberg just got rid of them. And the reason this matters, the, what, what takes something in and says, oh, well, it's just a newspaper choosing not to run something in an editorial choice versus censorship is dominance. Right. If you're if there are a lot of newspapers, if there are a lot of social networks or whatever, and one of them won't run something, then that's editing. But if there's one or if it's a major uh, player in our cultural commons, then editing kind of bleeds into censorship. And what Adam Codover was saying is that because of merger policy, because we don't really enforce antitrust anymore, the you know, there used to be a broad spectrum of TV networks and entertainment venues and distributors. And today there there are six. Right. And there are mer there are rumors that there are going to be mergers of those. So there's just less and less ability to have free expression because, you know, when you don't have many firms um, controlling the flow of information, then inherently their editorial choices become censorship choices. And we know that corporations censor to protect their own bottom line. Yeah, I recently interviewed uh, Bernie's uh, deputy campaign manager, Ari Rabenhoft, about his new book. And there's a story in there. It was new to me that the Senate office, Bernie's Senate office, had sat down with Facebook after the algorithm changes really notably depressed their reach. And in the course of that conversation, Facebook apparently told them that they should basically delegate how they message as a Senate office to Facebook in order to get around the al algorithm, basically taking uh, the, the letting Facebook take the lead about what the, the uh, an elected senator's messaging actually is in order to beat the the restrictions that they put on. And there's no recourse, of course, right? Like that is the whole problem is that you're dealing with these individual um, massive platforms and there's not a lot you can do in terms of competing somewhere else when everybody you're trying to reach is, is in one place. To that end, I wonder what you make of the Elon Musk buying Twitter. Are you optimistic that it will kind of increase uh, democracy as some people think or do you think there's a, a, an opportunity because it is a private company? I know he says he's going to take it pri uh, public again, but because it is private that some of these abuses might um, be exacerbated. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think the problem with social media is it's just regulated in a particular way that incentivizes people to fight with each other. Because like what these firms are doing is they're trying to maximize the amount of time you spend and the amount of data they can harvest so that they can, and they want to addict you so that they can either charge you money or um, or sell advertising. And it's a, it's a, it's a fundamental problem uh, with the business model and the regulatory choice that we've chosen. Um, in terms of Musk, I mean, look, the guy's owned by the Chinese government, right? I mean, he's he just opened his second plant of Tesla in in Shanghai. Uh, the the Chinese authorities uh, locked down everything in Shanghai, but except for the Tesla factory, he's the richest man in the world because of the Chinese government. And no one's talking about this because you know it's the right that is the, that are the China hawks, and they like Elon Musk doing this for their own cultural reasons. Um, and then the left doesn't really want to get at China and they want to talk about disinformation or whatever nonsense they care about. But like the Chinese government is very serious about controlling global discourse. And I worry that if you put the control of a major, um, you know, it's bad enough that there's TikTok, right? Right, I was going to say. <laughs> control of Twitter. Yeah. 
the, the yeah. worst, yeah, Trump, right. The, the worst yeah. case scenario has already happened. The most popular social media site is even more directly controlled uh, by by China, and that you know that to me is a clear. So you know, with the censorship terminology, I think it does get tricky, and I, I'm as guilty of this as anyone of, of using kind of the word censorship to describe uh, some uh, social media moderation decisions that I don't like. And I think it's, it's certainly fair to call it censorship when decisions are being made at the behest. Uh, either because it's been explicitly ordered by a government or in order to appease a government like the Chinese government. But then, you know, there's a, there's a spectrum to this, right? Because, I mean, if I, if I opened this show every day with like a diatribe against rising, I'd probably be fired. I don't think we'd call that <laughs> censorship, really. It would be, I mean, I, I would, but no one, like that would be an unreasonable thing to call it. Um, you know, so somewhere in between are these, you know, YouTube changing policies that we think are bad for discourse. That we criticize. I don't know if it's quite censorship. It might just be bad. Um, you know, there's a, there's a spectrum of, of decisions and, you know, how what we think it should be described. Does, that, does any of that resonate with you? Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And the way I would draw the line is I would just say it's about scale and market power. Right. So Rising isn't the only show on YouTube, for example. Um, and so when you guys, whatever you do is, it's just an editorial choice. And I think that's true for, you know, most out publishing outlets, they don't have any market power, but we're talking about, you know, YouTube itself, that is a, essentially a monopoly over video on the internet. Yeah, there are other kind of, there are other platforms, but they don't reach huge portions of the internet. So if YouTube were to make a change, then you're bleeding into corporate censorship versus, versus just an editorial decision. And that's what we see with things like Facebook. And that is why Mark Zuckerberg, for example, put together a kind of a Supreme Court type of arrangement for content moderation, right? And mm -hmm. they were explicitly mm -hmm. modeling it on the Supreme Court, right? So they recognize there is governing capacity here. So I don't actually make, I think the one area I disagree with is I don't think it's just about government. I think it's about these private governments and what makes a private government market power. Like it's really simple. If you, if there really isn't an alternative, then you have coercive governing power. And a lot of private entities have coercive governing power at this point in the economy um, and in our speech, you know, commons. Like for example, if Amazon doesn't sell your book, hmm. you ain't selling your book, right? I mean, that that's you know, if you can't if you can't get one of the six firms that do streaming that control now basically all entertainment, you can't get them to to actually put your video up. And if your video covers certain subjects, you won't be able to get them, then sorry, but you're, you don't have free speech. And I think that's what we're talking about here is, you know, when you have market power, it becomes censorship versus when you don't, it's just editing. So Matt, what then are the antitrust interventions that people who are concerned about this should be pushing for? I think breaking up firms uh, that have dominant market power, if you can, would be helpful. So if there were, say, 10 search engines that people used versus just one general search engine versus just one, then that one search engine would be much less important. Um, and, you know, there are other provisions you could make for, uh, for, for network systems. I think breaking up the streaming services, both, you know, saying you can make content or you can distribute content, but you can't do both. That's what we, that's the way we used to work. So that would open up, like that would create sort of these open markets where, where distributors would have to bid over the sort of the more creative stuff versus just end to end control. Um, 
And then, you know, there are certain regulations that you can put in place to make sure that, you know, that there is, uh, there's when you have network systems that you can't break up because they're just, they're, you know, they're network systems, uh, then rules to ensure that there's some level of neutrality in how they operate, things to tamp down on the amplification of content, on the pro profits from data and advertising. I think you can like, you know, m make, you know, what you want to aim for is, uh, like a telecom network. Like when I call you, I have T-Mobile, I call you on, you know, T-Mobile doesn't care what I say. They just charge me money. And, you know, sometimes they charge me too much, but like they don't try to censor because their business model doesn't, doesn't matter what I, what I say. Um, and that's kind of where you want to get to. Uh, so where you can break these institutions up, you should, and where you can't, because the, the network system, the value is having the network system, mm -hmm. then you should try to create a model where, um, where it's it's neutral and and they don't make money depend you know based on manipulating what you say. Yeah, I think that's such an important point that it's it is the advertising uh, model, the fact that they are making money on driving clicks as opposed to us just picking up the phone and communicating to but each other. That's what other. allows the service to be free, though, right? I, I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't want to pay if this is a, like a subscription model for these services that. It's better that it's mm -hmm. Facebook is is make right makes money selling just, uh, several of the things you, you just mentioned the, the curated advertising experience. I don't I don't know if I don't know I, I don't think I would want to pay I, I wouldn't want the kind of customer service and and uh, and experience and the cost of like uh, of, of my internet service provider or my cable company. Well, Matt, what do you say to Disastrous. that? Disastrous. <laughs> Well, look, if, if people are not willing to pay for social media, look, people have paid for goods and services for thousands of years. It's the most basic business model. If people don't want to pay money for something, like you're paying for Facebook or, or social media, right? you're paying with your attention, your time, your data, and they're just sort of pretending that you're not. And so if you don't want to, if, if they're not willing to explicitly say, here's what it costs you, uh, and instead they want to like on the back end steal your Saturday night, like, or, you know, you sit down and you're like, oh, I'll just go on YouTube for a second. And then your Saturday night's gone. That's a way of paying. I just think that they should be honest about the cost. And if people are not willing to put money into it, then it, the product should, you know, that's, they shouldn't, it should yeah. exist. Also, I, I think, do think it's overstated because Facebook at the end of the day was started by a 21, a 20 year old college student for free in 2004. And the question I don't think is whether or not Facebook would exist if not for them being going to make gobs of money off of selling our data. It's whether or not it would be the billion dollar company it is and whether it needs to be, whether that's a socially beneficial outcome. Thank you so much for talking to us today, uh, Matt. This has been edifying. Can I just say one last thing? Sure. Just so, so one thing that is happening that is good is there is a merger in the book publishing industry between Penguin and Simon and Schuster which is a, exactly an example of these oligopolies that control speech, right? This mm. is books. And the Department of Justice Antitrust Division is challenging that merger partially on the basis that there are diversity and speech harms here. So there is actually something, you know, that enforcers are doing here. And there's sort of an increasing realization from, from people that in government that this is actually a structural problem. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. <laughs> And next, Democratic Senator Patty Murray has told PBS that the Senate will vote next week on a bill to codify abortion and make it legal in every state. We'll discuss that coming up.
Democratic Senator Patty Murray has told PBS that the Senate will vote next week on a bill to codify abortion and make it legal in every state. This is in response to growing unrest and mounting calls to codify Roe in the wake of Alito's leaked abortion memo. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden's administration is looking at grants to help fund expanding access to emergency contraception if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe. In a press briefing, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters, quote, what we have done to date where we have seen restrictions is created, for example, the Dire Need Grant Awards, which provide funding to expand access to emergency contraception. Law enforcement authorities across the country are preparing for the possibility of violence and civil unrest in reaction to the leaked SCOTUS draft. This according to internal reports obtained by Yahoo News. Do you think there'll be rioting in uh, widespread rioting if the decision goes the way it's expected to go? I, I don't. I don't know. Maybe I'm overly cynical. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think I so I don't either. think so either. What's your reasoning, Ken? Well, I just, you know, this... Uh, Unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know which way you want to look at it, but abortion affects a very small group of people. So even though it's women, it's not all women, right? Because a lot of women are not of reproductive age anymore, or a lot of women uh, would not ever get an abortion. And so it is that the numbers are smaller and smaller. Um, And so I just don't think that there's enough women of reproductive age who would want to get an Because you have to remember, a lot of women are very pro-life still. So even in that group, you don't have... It would be one thing if all women of reproductive age or just all women in general were very pro-choice, but that's not the situation. It's still very divided even amongst women. So I just don't see it being, I I see protests for sure. I just don't think it's going to, and men don't, I I don't think men are going to come out for women's issues. So I just, I don't see enough of a group getting together for it to cause any sort of real commotion. Yeah, my concern is that the flip side of a lot of the rhetoric that points out the fact that it's, it's an issue that disproportionately affects low-income women is that low-income women are disempowered. They tend to have to go to work. They're not the people who usually occupy uh, protests, which tend to be populated by the more affluent folks who can be at a park at noon in the middle of a work day. And that ultimately, like so many other issues affecting the poor, this one's going to go by the wayside. Yeah. Well, and you have to remember it, it would disproportionately affect poor black women, because mm-hmm. we have to also recognize that poor Hispanic women, they, they're actually the least likely to get abortions just for religious reasons, for for actual. You know, they're just the one of the lowest groups to get. Yeah, abortions. The stats, I think the stats we heard uh, from a guest yesterday were that it is a it's what, about high 30s. Uh, white right. It's, women. Inc- it's older than you might expect is what I'm. Oh, the average age. Yes, the is, is age. in the 30s. And most people have already had at least one child. Right. But that it's, it's kind right. of broken into thirds. It's not over 50 percent white women, but it's like in the in the 30s. And then the, the rest was split up between black and brown women with black women having a higher percentage than brown women, but kind of, you know, I, I don't want to overstate the difference between those chunks. I think that you're right that Hispanic women for religious reasons are the smallest of those groups, but it's still disproportionately, the bulk is black and brown women. And as you point out, Kim, those tend to be the groups that are not politically represented in these kinds of contexts. You know, I wanted to throw out an interesting uh, thought. Uh, I saw this being expressed on Twitter uh, yesterday. Sagar, uh, former host of this show, retweeted it. I saw Matt Iglesias discussing it a little bit. Um, it was uh, Dave Portnoy, who's barstool sports guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was talking about this, and he was saying, like, I guess he's very pro-choice. And, you know, he's 
of the kind of, you know, a little bit of the Joe Rogan variety type, like, you know, basically liberal or would have been described as liberal or, I don't know, maybe even left on some stuff, but thinks, I don't know, the, thinks woke cancellation stuff is really bad and really serious and has turned him off of Democrats and more toward Republicans. You know, I'm wildly, sum that's a kind of summary of a type of person who exists. Lots of individual differences there, but that kind of person. And, and Portnoy was saying that, oh, well, if abortion is the issue, then I'm, I'm like, that this is on the table ma makes me go back to being very much supportive of Democrats. Yeah. And I wonder how many, or if there's a large enough constituency of Portnoy, Rogan type people. And again, I don't even know Rogan's specific views on this. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, painting with a very broad brush here. Don't get me wrong. But if there is a kind of constituency who, you know, was moving away from, from Democrats over woke stuff, cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, but is back in play because of this. And maybe that's not very many people, or maybe it, but maybe it is a, a great number of people of, uh, or of, of young men who, who actually also think Not access so to abortion men. is important. Um, I don't know. Yeah, for every woman who's gotten an abortion, there's a man who didn't have a kid who would have otherwise. And, you know, I know that this is framed as a women's issue, and obviously it affects women most pointedly. But I think there are probably more than a few men who... Win. Women? Don't you mean birthing persons? What's a woman, Brianna? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know. I'm not familiar with this terminology. We can't define it even at the Supreme Court level. Yeah, I think, I think there are a lot, of, a lot of men who will... Maybe they're not very vocal about all of this, but certainly have a lot at stake. And whether they're going to be populating um, uh, uh, protests, that's an, an interesting question as well. I did see that Shama Sawant, the Seattle City Councilwoman, uh, first elected socialist uh, to political office in however many years, was saying that we shouldn't put our eggs in the basket of codifying Roe. To the earlier point in this segment, it doesn't seem like Biden has any interest in getting rid of the filibuster. And this seems like a performative gesture since it's it's obvious that there's not the votes in the Senate to actually pass something like this. What her point was that it is going to take, whether or not we think it's likely, a huge uprising that's a popular uprising to get this in any other, any number of other progressive agenda items passed. And I think I agree with her that that's, that's how historically across the world women have agitated for reproductive rights. It's how historically we got to a place where, you know, we started to shift the public opinion on Roe, obviously the Supreme Court preempted, I think, that shift in a way that we're still dealing with now in terms of political consequences. But people who are hoping there's a, 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 a kind of a left outcome here and that the right to choose is codified or protected in some meaningful way outside of just kind of judicial fiat should be hoping that we're wrong about the likelihood of mass protests. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, Florida Representative Matt Gates said in a recent tweet, by the way, how many of the women rallying against overturning Roe are overeducated, underloved millennials who sadly return from protest to a lonely microwave dinner with their cats and no Bumble matches. That's a pretty specific oh, image. <laughs> I didn't take offense because I have a lot of Bumble matches. So. <laughs> oh, 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 this one's not about me. There you go. Yeah. But like I said, it's not just you know, it's not just that person that he's describing. But like I was, I was seeing some of the anti woke male crowd kind of yeah. going back the other way, which I think is interesting. Yeah, well, this tweet received a slew of reactions with many users on Twitter saying that calling women, women, quote, overeducated for caring about their basic freedoms is a concise way to expose how, quote, anti-woman, anti-education, and anti-freedom the Republican Party is. Other people took this as an opportunity to make a stab at Gates' own 
love life. <laughs> look, when are yeah. people going to learn that personalizing this stuff, whether it's AOC saying that people are really mad at her because they want to go out with her, whether it's Elon Musk, you know, punching back on, uh, at her for that statement, that kind of bringing your personal romantic dramas into these things is usually not going to work out for you. Yeah. yeah. No. I, I wonder, I wonder if with, you know, going back to codifying it, I wonder if there could be some sort of a of a more of an of a consensus if the you know i i think the debate is so charged and emotional but if they if people just said look we just want to codify like the first trimester the first 12 weeks or the first 14 weeks um then that like how many people would actually be on board with that rather than just this sort of feeling because i feel like on the right they're more upset about late term even though late term is not actually a thing that's really done almost anywhere in the country, I think there's only a couple of states that actually still allow for that outside of a woman's life being in danger or something like that. But uh, maybe if they if they shortened it and said, look, we want to definitely codify at least the first 14 weeks nationwide and then state by state, they could decide on the rest. I mean, do you think there would maybe be more of a appetite for that? Well, that's an interesting point. I would probably accept that as, as someone who's not as uh, you know, mo more muddled views on this than uh, than you both have, and many of the people we've talked to. Um, yeah, I, I would, I, I would certainly preserve the ability to do it in the first. I, I don't know the the first trimester, first well, some so, some number of weeks, and and, and might be and, and would probably be fine uh, prohibiting it at the state level at, at other. Roe established the Not first true. trimester. That was already what Roe v. Wade said. Right. Casey established uh, 23 or 24 weeks. And it's worth noting that the right. reason that the trimester system was set up in Roe, they were going to aim for a shorter period of time, which is frankly what exists, you know, 12 to 14 weeks in other parts of the world, including countries that we consider to be more progressive than the United States had that shorter time limit. But when they were deciding Roe, um, Thurgood Marshall part of the consideration was that we don't have universal health care. We don't have any kind of health care access in this country. Right. And we were, they were concerned that it would just take women a longer period of time to even figure out and then get access to care. So that's kind of why we have a longer time frame than other countries in the world, which is ironic, obviously, from my perspective as a progressive. But I would point out, Kim, that the, the, the uh, plaintiffs in the Dobbs case that's at issue here, they asked for a narrow, uh, uh, sorry, a broader decision. They didn't want to just decide on a 15-week limitation that was on the books in Mississippi. They wanted an all or nothing up and down. And that's part of Alito's justification in the opinion for ruling on Roe and Casey more broadly instead of just saying, oh, I'm going to limit it to 15 weeks. So there's right. this tension between what certain people want, at least the conservatives in the Supreme Court, what the, the advocates in Mississippi actually wanted in terms of outcomes and what the general public might want to have a consensus on. Yeah, I, I just think that the country would probably be more on board with maybe a 15-week limit to abortion and then states could then decide after that point and i wonder mm -hmm. if it would tamper the debate completely if it would actually you know if they could get that through and this would maybe be a motivation for democrats to codify at least up to that point is maybe it would then stop the debate mm -hmm. you know and stop giving republicans something to run on but what else are they going to run on at that point i mean they could run on it on a state-by-state -state issue you could say in colorado for example which has abortion all the way up until whenever you know, they could maybe then have some sort of a rally, a battle cry for Colorado, but it wouldn't necessarily be a nationwide thing unless they're wanting to absolutely abolish it, even on a state level that a state can't even decide uh, on a state by state choice. You know, that maybe would be something, but then that would go against like the, you know, the Republicans being more about federalism. So I just think it would maybe be even a Democrat's benefit to just codify it up to like 15 weeks around the country and then rip that debate away.
can I just end this? Another uh, another thing I would like to do that I, I've forgotten to mention until now is uh, is over the counter birth control. The the this is yeah. uh, FDA reform. Yep, a- yep. Absolutely ridiculous that you can't just buy it at uh, CVS or Walgreens or whatever. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That and right the morning after pill, which also also you have to go to the counter and get from the pharmacist and also just maybe changing the way we teach women's health and maybe making it part of an every month cycle testing yourself for pregnancy. But the point of that would only be if you had access to termination Mm -hmm. in that first trimester. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Lots we could do with it, but. Indeed. Coming up, we'll break down Bill Gates' comments over the lab leak theory. Stick around for that. Microsoft billionaire Bill Gates told Comedy Central's Trevor Noah that it's quite clear COVID-19 came from bats. Let's watch. How do we prevent something where we don't even understand how it came to be? Like, you know, are there labs where they need to do better at, at, at you know, enclosing the work that they're doing? I understand that they have to do the work, but how do we figure that out and how do we move forward in, the, in that realm? Well, we should be careful about lab safety. It's quite clear in this case that it came across through animals. Mm-hmm. And almost all our diseases, like HIV, crossed over from chimpanzees in Africa quite some time ago. Ebola came from bats. Uh, this also, uh, with one step in between, came... Uh, from bats. So it's going to keep happening, particularly with climate change, where we're invading uh, a lot of habitats. Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan pointed out on Twitter, Bill Gates dismisses the lab leak theory by telling Trevor Noah it's quite clear in this case that it came through, uh, came across through animals. But the whole point of the theory is that the bats and the animals it may have come through were both at the Wuhan lab. So this is so frustrating because, yes, it in all likelihood came from bats, but they were researching bats. They, they were right. doing work on bats in the laboratory. So the question is whether whether bats in the wild, without having been manipulated by scientists or been experimented on in labs, bats infected some other animal that then infected humans, maybe at the wet market. That's one idea. The other idea being, no, they... they they took these bats that were in these caves and they did research on them and they manipulated the viruses they had and then there was a, a contamination at the lab. Someone got sick and that's what touched off the pandemic. Those are the two theories. We don't know for sure which one it is. You can point to some reasons to think one and you can point to some reasons to think the other. A lot of the debunking of like, oh, it definitively came from this wet market. It's garbage. You know, where is, the, we're still looking for this other animal. The other animal which we found, you know, last time there was a, was a pandemic was found very swiftly. It's not out there in the wild. So we still have a lot of questions. So the, the way he, you know, just dismissed that um, with, with, with an answer that doesn't even make any sense. That doesn't dismiss that at all. You could tell he knew he was gaslighting too, because at the point he said that, you know, very, it's very clear he kind of crossed his arms, not to do the body language expert thing from Joanne Reed, but, mm, mm. you know, that, that was some A-level a gaslighting. It is frustrating because we, when you were in a position like Trevor Noah, I, I wonder, I don't know if he's done other segments talking about lab leak theory. I feel like at this point, it has been mainstreamed enough and allowed in public discourse enough that Bill Gates wouldn't be able to get away with saying things like that without a certain degree of pushback. But it can be tough when you're in that interviewing chair, um, throwing something like that on the spot. So when emphasizing that it's very clear to have the the chutzpah to push back where necessary. 
Yeah, he didn't technically lie, though, right? So he's saying, well, it came from an animal. Right. Like right. Ro- like Robbie's saying, yeah, maybe an animal in a lab that right. they were testing, and then they manipulated the virus, and then, you know, and, and then it got out. And so, I mean, he wasn't really lying. So, I mean, of course, yes, okay, fine, it came from an animal. Uh, but that doesn't negate the fact that it maybe came from an animal that then was tested on and that and then it made it more virulent and then it escaped from that lab and maybe perhaps had it just jumped from an animal, it, actually, it's possible it never would have been able to jump from an animal right. to a person. That is maybe what they were manipulating in the lab because that's what they were studying was how do viruses transmit from animal to human? How do you tr- how do you study that without actually attempting to right. do it? Right. That's how you that's something how you we didn't do really it, need so. to know until we did it and infected the entire world with this horrible disease. Um, and, yeah. and he was using it to, the, the way he said that he uh, Bill Gates was pivoting away from a very important question about lab standards and lab safety. It is totally legitimate for the American people, the, the people of Earth, everyone to have questions about our governments, other governments, funding, conducting these research uh, through some partnerships with other governments, through, through uh, medical groups. This, this research, of which Dr. Fauci has been this foremost advocate, then being conducted under lab uh, situations that maybe we don't have full control over, maybe with it, there was, you know, there's these labs, uh, the Wuhan lab got bad, horrible, horrible safety reviews. We don't know the full extent of it because the Chinese government won't tell us. But there's so many reasons for concern, and, and he was very much pivoting away from that, I expect, because he wants to fund, you know, all sorts of scientific research without anybody, you know, getting his way, asking too many questions about lab safety. But lab safety is a pretty, I'm concerned, I'm concerned about it even, if it, even if it is true, that the disease totally originated naturally, like HIV, like some other diseases. I, like, even if that's all true, I still don't know about whether this research is strictly, it's, this research does seem reckless to yeah. me. And the reason, to be clear, well, they don't want that connection to be drawn is because the liability would be in a monetary amount that is more than has ever existed yeah. in the face of, in the history of the planet. You know, nobody wants to be on the hook for the disaster no. of the last two years. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just not, it, it's... It's crazy the way this gets. And remember, this has gone, this theory, which, again, is still a theory. We don't know for sure. I think it's reasonable to, to guess in one direction or the other. This was something, you know, you were, not, you were shamed for discussing first by the Washington, uh, not by Josh Rogan, who's terrific on this stuff, but uh, other people in the mainstream media, you know, made it sound like you were a crazy, paranoid conspiracy theorist. If, if you thought it had some plausibility, then it was something you were, you were literally not allowed to talk about on social media, in part because aspects of our government were encouraging social media sites to clamp down on this conversation, weirdly trying to portray this conversation as racist, as as reflecting a racial bias against Asian people, which makes no sense. And if anything is the reverse, the theory that this is due to a specific Chinese cultural food and animal practices is the reason we have this disease involves much <laughs> more kind of racial stereotyping and, 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 and it involves race in a much, much, much bigger way than the theory that, you know, a, a, a lab with poor safety uh, administered by an authoritarian government is the, is the responsible party, yeah. and, and, and in part with, you know, with funding through our own government. And that is by far the, the less race-involving uh, reality. And, and whatever way it is, is whatever way it is. If it is, if it is the case that this is 
because of Chinese cultural practices. Like that's the reality, and we we have to grapple with that and condemn it if we feel it's it's or criticize it if we feel it's it, it should be criticized. But the attempt to 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 have one be the more primary explanation than the other because racism is, is to, was totally backwards anyway. So mm. so for sure. Everybody's a suspect. That's what I say. Everyone's Everybody, still a suspect. It, even the bat. Colonel <laughs> Mustard in the greenhouse with the, uh, the lead pipe. Yeah, that's what I think. All right, well, the Pope made some heads turn yesterday over his comments on the Ukraine war and NATO, so we'll discuss that coming up next. Pope Francis lit up the Internet yesterday after he said that NATO barking at Russia's door aided in Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The Pope also revealed he offered to meet with the Russian president weeks ago, but did not receive a response. And it turns out even the Pope isn't immune from being labeled a conspiracy theorist. Mainstream media said the Pope, the Pope quote, veered toward conspiracy theory as he blamed the international community for instigating the war. Heresy. Uh, he, he should excommunicate them. No, you can't, you can't accuse the Pope of spreading misinformation. Uh, I, I say that as a as a Catholic born and raised, Catholic. Um, yes. not sort of non-practicing now. But uh, yeah, that's uh, those those are some fighting words. Yeah, or, uh, th- those of us who've been called Putin's puppet are in good company now. With the Pope. <laughs> yeah, say Pope's oh, Putin Pope puppet three times fast. Pope, Pope, Pope's Putin puppet. Pope, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's, uh, so it's the hard. Pope, the Pope has been, you know, kind of an interesting figure during this time because all throughout since the beginning of the war, he had been denouncing, obviously, the aggression. He hadn't, you know, he's kind of walking a fine line, though, because what he had done is saying things like the war in Ukraine is shameful, that there are rivers of blood and, you know, talking about Ukraine's right to self-defense, which, of course, they have the right. No, I've never asserted they don't have the right. I don't think anyone's ever asserted they don't have the right to defend themselves. I think the question is, should we be the ones supplying the weapons and should they defend themselves rather than negotiate is, I think, a, a question that many of us have asked. Um, but now the Pope taking a more firmer stance saying this is NATO's fault. So before he was kind of saying he wasn't really taking, putting blame. I mean, he put the blame on Russia saying Russia's invading, but even without really fully blaming Russia. So he was, he did it in a very, um, kind of fine line way, but now full on coming out and saying NATO, that is like the big no, no, you're not allowed to blame the West for Russia's aggression. Obviously Russia is the one making the aggression, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we can't ask the reasons for the aggression. Right. And NATO going right up to their doorstep is a reason that Russia has been citing for its aggression. Right. I don't like to use the phrase. I wouldn't say I wouldn't use the word fault for NATO. I'd say that the invasion is Russia's fault. It's Vladimir Putin's fault. But we can talk about the decisions NATO made that should have that could have and ought to have been different that would have minimized uh, would have lessened the chance that. Putin would com- would commit this heinous act, and that is perfectly legitimate to discuss. And, and you know, it's not new for the Pope either to condemn. Like the Pope condemned, it, it was what it was one or two popes ago. Um, it was John Paul II by then, right? For our invasion of Iraq was mm-hmm. was I believe condemned by the Vatican, or was that uh, that was right around the time of the switch from. John Paul II to Benedict. Um, so I actually can't remember which pope it was at the time. Do either of you know? You don't know. Not, no, I thought I was showing. I was don't showing remember. off my knowledge of popes, but I can't <laughs> right. remember. But I, I, either, either way, it was it was condemned uh, by mm-hmm. the Vatican. So they're like they're not 
so they're, they, they, they do speak out against all sorts of uh, uh, sort of military um, confrontation. I mean, the Pope, the, the, the Pope who was, it was another Benedict during uh, World War I was, you know, just mm. trying at all times to get the people to like stop fighting. Please stop fighting. This war is pointless. People are dying for no reason. It's not even being fought over any kind of like lofty principle or any, it's just stupid. And uh, the also, I'm going to, I'm going to risk engaging in some blasphemy here, but the Pope being called a conspiracy theorist, I mean, you know, he's the leader of a religion. A lot of people think religion itself is conspiracy Ooh. theory, right? Ooh. Ooh. No, I'm sorry. Ooh. <laughs> Just saying. That, yeah, yeah, I agree. Keep, keep going, Kim. That's not conspiracy. <laughs> once, you, uh, yeah. once you finish that thought. Oh, walking on water, parting Red Seas. All the animals spinning on one boat. You know, there's just a lot of rising from the dead. I mean, like I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, boy. Not, not reading this comment section, Kim. Oh, boy. Uh, so the Pope, though, is not alone in his sentiments, despite allegations of conspiracy. Brazil's ex-president and founder of the Workers' Party, Lula, said that President Zelensky is, quote, just as responsible for the war in Ukraine as Putin is. Glenn Greenwald pointed out the significance of Lula, the Pope, and Noam Chomsky, all in agreement over Ukraine, adding that Western leftists should think twice before supporting NATO in fueling the war. And again, I wouldn't I would not say that I don't think Zelensky is as responsible for the war as Putin is. But that doesn't mean we can't say, here's what he should do differently or here's what we want him to do. I get why you're saying that, because no one, I think, wants to absolve Putin of his agency in the situation and his responsibility in the situation. But I do feel that sometimes the demand that we all kind of, you know, loyally preempt any statement or criticism that we make of NATO with, of course, it's Putin's fault, is a kind of rhetorical tactic meant to continue to take the heat off of NATO. It's like the whole world has forgotten what, you know, causation means, what, you know, contributory negligence means, what all of these principles we have to understand that sometimes many people are doing bad things, but this is the but for cause of this outcome. And I think what everyone's trying to say and be like, be in the kind of worming around a little bit because nobody wants to be called Putin's puppet is that as, you know, Putin is a set quantity. Putin is who Putin is. Like we've been, we went through a cold war. We've existed with this, you know, um, other large power kind of existing in a different kind of uh, political and economic ecosystem on the other side of the world. But the but for cause, the but for action that precipitated the current conflict was NATO's, you know, uh, undermining of its commitment not to continue to expand following the Cold War. The whole point of this was that it was a defensive alliance and that has now been encroaching, encroaching, encroaching over these years. And we saw what happened in 2014. That was the the precipitating event, the canary in the coal mine. And it feels, I don't know, it feel, there's something that feels a little wormy to me about the idea yeah. that we all have to continue just to say, I mean, isn't it no? It's it's it should be known by now that nobody here approves of war, approves of violence, approves of starting conflict, approves of killing. We all get it. Putin Putin is doing a bad thing. The part of the conversation that it's difficult to get out and difficult to hear on the mainstream news is the part about what NATO and the West has done to instigate. And also, I think it's important to bring up that this was going on. This Russia saying you are in ta- you're you know instigating and antagonizing us, and you're causing this problem. 
they've been saying that before Putin was even in power in Russia. You know, he's been there since, what, 2000 or something. So prior to that, you even have Gorbachev saying, don't do this. Quit expanding NATO. They expanded it greatly under Clinton. That was before Putin was ever even around. And they so and the Russians were saying, hey, you promised you weren't going to do this. You're now going to cause a problem. They were saying you're going to cause a war. You're going to cause a problem by continuing to do this. That was before Putin was even around. So the alarm had been sounded well before Putin. This isn't just a Putin thing, actually. This is a Russian thing. All the Russian leaders, even if it wasn't Putin, have been saying this is a problem. You, NATO, are causing a problem. It just happened to get to a breaking point finally now, 30 years later, while Putin was in power. But I'm telling you, even if it weren't Putin, it would have been somebody else. And I think this outcome wouldn't have been much different. It's the Russians. They have been saying it collectively that this is a problem. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky have a great show planned for you all, and they'll chat with Nina Turner about what's next for her and the progressive movement in the wake of her loss in Ohio against establishment favorite Chantel Brown. And we, of course, will be back with you next week. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So be sure to check us out there. All right, guys, thanks for watching. We'll see you. Well, Emily and Ryan will see you tomorrow. We'll see you. uh, I'm sure you'll see more of us around, and we'll definitely be back next week. (laughs) Bye-bye. See you then. Bye-bye.